0: This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website, www.anchorchurch.com.au. Father God, I thank you that you are good. I thank you that you're generous. And I pray, God, as we think of the, the generosity that you've stirred amongst your people, I ask God that you would continue to help us to do that. We thank you that you have been abundantly good, giving us everything in your son, that you've been generous materially in our lives. We are so blessed. And so I pray that you'd help us to continue to respond with generous hearts and generous lives. And God, we pray now as we come before you in your word and ask that you would speak. We know that you are real today that you are here by your Spirit. And we ask that you would speak by your Word and challenge us and shape us to be your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name, all of God's people said. Amen. Amen. I don't know if you... um, I feel like I need to be really subdued today because if I get excited, my voice is just going to walk out the room. So I'm going to be really husky and low. Uh, I don't know if you... Watched that TV series a couple of years ago, Sons of Anarchy. I really, really enjoyed that. Um, that show, not just because, not because not it's violent, but, um, you know, it's got Harley Davidson's in it, obviously. I, I like that bit about it. But it kind of sent me on a bit of a spin of researching outlaw motorcycle bikey gangs, uh, in particularly here in Australia. I wanted to learn a little bit more about them and, you know, who, what gangs were here in Australia. And so I, you know, watched everything I could on YouTube. And there's a bunch of really interesting documentaries that have made been made here in Australia. And the thing that stood out for me, and you can see it very clearly on the TV show, is this code of loyalty that exists in these, these motorcycle clubs, uh, a type of loyalty almost that I, that you look at and you feel jealous of. You think, wow, I want that type of loyalty in my GC, in my church, in my family. That uh, loyalty is worth so much. Um, one of, the th- one of the features you'll notice of uh, the outlaw motorcycle gangs is they have a number of things sewn onto their vests. They're called patches, and they're not allowed to wear them in public anymore because of the, all of the laws that the government have created, which has really just pushed them, you know, it's out of sight, out of mind, but they're still there. They just don't wear their colours anymore. But one of the things that they wear on their vests is um, a patch, and depending on the name of their club, so if they're a, a rebel part of the Rebels Motorcycle Club, it'll say RFFR. And it means Rebels Forever, Forever Rebels. Or it might be Hells Angels, HFFH. Hells Forever, Forever Hells Angels. And there is this undying loyalty and code to the club. So much so that if you decide you don't want to be a part of the club anymore, you can't just leave, they'll kill you if you leave. And so they uh, they have people in positions of leadership within their club and one of those people is called a sergeant at arms, and he is the enforcer. He is the one who ensures that loyalty and the codes of the club are adhered to. And sometimes the punishment and discipline is dished out with brutal force. And some, we see that often spilled out on the pages of our newspaper and on our TV screens. But it kind of got me thinking about the types of characteristics that exhibit communities. And we have certain things that are part of our church, that or part of any church, really, that we want to see characterising who we are as God's people. But we don't necessarily have a sergeant-at-arms who, um, who enforces those rules. I mean, we could certainly pick a few people. I can James would do a pretty good job of being a sergeant-at-arms. He's got the, the, the beard, the looks. Uh, perhaps Chris Bartemote, one of the other big boys, he could, he could be a sergeant-at-arms. But we don't enforce our ethics on the basis of law and brutality and force. No, it's, it's the grace of Jesus. It's the law of grace and it's the love of God that stirs our communal ethical life together. We don't need a sergeant at arms. We have the Holy Spirit and we have the Word of God. And so this morning, what we're going to be looking at is all of the one another commands in the New Testament, Last week, we looked at all of the outward facing characteristics of God's people, that we are a holy people and that our good deeds ought to act as things that would draw people to worship our God. Well, this week, we're going to look at all of the inward facing characteristics of the people of God in the One Another Commands. There are about 57 of these commands in the New Testament, at least on on my count. I could be wrong. But uh, I've printed them all out for you this morning on the sheets of paper that are on your chairs. And it'd be really helpful if you kept them close because we're going to refer to that as we go. But I want to give you one example of the one another verses that we find in the New Testament. That is Romans 12, verse 10. It's on the screen behind me. And it says this, Love one another. With brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Now, that word there, in English it's two words, in the original language it's one word, but that word shows up in 55 other verses throughout the New Testament. And uh, I've summarized them into four categories for us this morning, four categories to help us think about how we create an others centered community. About a third of these commands that we find are about unity and peace about a, th- a third of them are about love, about a quarter of them are about the words that we use to speak to one another and four of them are about kissing. So yes, we're gonna talk about kissing today and Brad's already given away my joke so it, it, it doesn't quite work. But I was thinking about this. I've been watching a little bit of um, The Voice. Um, I really, really like the blind auditions. It gets boring after that. It gets really curated after that point but the, the blind auditions feel nice and raw. But if you've noticed with the promotional ads for The Voice, they, they build it up to make it sound so epic, like there's this conflict between Delta and George that's going to end all, it's like earth shattering, and, and then you watch it, you're like, wasn't that bad? And you feel lied to, right? Or they'll get to a point where there's this really like meaty thing, and then they cut to an ad break. And so, you know, we're going to talk about kissing and come back after the ad break, and we'll talk more about kissing, but it's actually going to be really disappointing because we're not really talking about kissing today all that much so now realistically every single one of these 57 verses here on that page are an outworking of love in one way or another but that doesn't work for a nice sermon structure I need three or four points I can't just say you know just go love each other Um, so we've got four points here And this isn't certainly everything that the New Testament says about church community and about how we relate to one another. These are just the ones that use that word, one another. But it's a nice representation of the broader suite of commands about how we treat each other. Every single letter written to a church in the New Testament has some form of address about how the church ought to treat each other. Some of the churches are healthy. They're doing well. There's encouragement. Some of the churches like Corinth, there's, there's like lots of commands about how they're not treating each other well, how they're rushing to meals and eating and not waiting for each other, and uh, and so there's a bunch of commands in the New Testament in the, in the epistles about how we ought to treat one another as the church. Now it's also important to say that doing these commands doesn't create the church. It's not like well if you if you did all 57 of these and tick them all off every week religiously then. You will have created a healthy church. No, Jesus creates the church. He is the one who adopts us into his family. And this is how we live as his people in response to what he has done as we seek to be the people of God gathered together. So, today, as we cast vision for what it looks like to be God's people. We don't do this naively, like all of these amazing things about love and unity and peace and joy. It just sounds amazing. The reality is community and church community is often hard. And So that's why Brad preached a couple of weeks ago on what it looks like to be a peacemaking community, because there will be conflict. There will be disunity that needs to be reunited. And so we're not naive about this, but there is this beautiful picture that gets painted before us in the New Testament. And I believe that the local church, I believe Anchor should be the most loving community on the face of the planet. Your gospel community should be the loving, most loving group of people that you have in your life. Why? Well, because of what God has done for us. So in order to do that, in order to be a part of a community like that, we need to embody these five categories of other-centred community. So we need to be others centered in our attitudes. We need to be others centered in our actions. We need to be others centered in our words. And we need to be others centered in our hearts. So we're going to have a look at all of those four now. But as we, before we get there, depending on your perspective, this is kind of actually a hard or an easy sermon to preach. It's easy because, um, you know, you can read a verse like Colossians 3.13 that says, bear with one another. Well, what more do you need to say about that other than just go do it, right? And so it's an easy sermon to preach in that respect. It's also kind of hard because I'm like, gee, I need to pack this out a bit with a bit of extra content. You know, I, maybe I could, when it says love one another, I could unpack all the different words for love in the New Testament. And there's eros, which is romantic love. And that's what it's not what it's talking about. There's like phileo, which is like, you know, brotherly love. And that's not what it's talking about. There's like agape, which is like deep Christian love modelled on the cross. So we could do a little bit of work there, a bit of historical context into, you know, what the kiss of love means. But realistically, most of these verses are fairly straightforward, right? You read it, there's not much more to say other than go do it. That doesn't really make for a good sermon. Go and be patient with one another. But the reality is that a part of this is actually so simple it doesn't need a preach. And in that respect, it's a very easy sermon to preach, but it's a very difficult one to live out. So let's have a look at these four areas where we are to be others-centred. The first is in our attitudes. If you glance down there at some of the, um, the attitudes on that first page there, you will see some of them. Being at peace, a spirit of unity, uh, honouring one another, a harmony, not, not being judgmental. Uh, patience, forgiving others, not judging, caring. These are all attitudes that we are supposed to have. And an attitude is simply a settled way of thinking, a settled way of thinking, a a characteristic way of thinking (coughs) or acting in a community or an individual. And as apprentices of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, We're to have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. What Philippians 2, 5 says, have the same mind, the same attitude as Christ Jesus. Our community is to be marked by these things. This is what we're to be known for. The bikies are known for their brutal adherence to loyalty. Well, we're known for honour and patience and grace and forgiveness and care and love and unity and peace. John Maxwell, in his brilliant book on teamwork, says this about attitude, and it's quite profound. It's almost like a little poem. He says this, It is the advanced man of our true selves. Now, the advanced man is, uh, it's a North American term for a delegate who's sent on behalf of an important dignitary to go and sort out their affairs, their accommodation, before they, that dignitary arrives So our attitude is the advanced man of our true selves. Its roots are inward, but its fruit is outward. It's our best friend or worst enemy. It's more honest and more consistent than our words. It's an outward look based on past experience. It's a thing which draws people to us or repels them away. It's never content until it is expressed. It's the librarian of our past, the speaker of our present, and the prophet of our future." Quite, quite profound little poem there about our attitude. We have a collective attitude here at Anchor. Your gospel community has a collective attitude, a tone, a characteristic about the way that we interact with each other. And our attitudes are to reflect that of Christ Jesus. And you contribute to that. Whether you do that in a positive way or a negative way, we all contribute to our attitude here at anchor, so I want to camp out on one of these verses here on attitude. It's Romans twelve verse ten, because I reckon it's pretty overlooked in Christian community. Romans twelve ten says this: outdo one another in showing honour. Outdo one another in showing honour. Now, if you if you've grown up in any form of church like I have in the past, um, honouring another person wasn't really a part of the culture that I came from because we were so afraid of puffing someone up and filling them with pride and then making them stumble in their sin that you never wanted to honour them or encourage them or build them up because, hey, if they did a good job, they know it and we don't want to make them full of pride. Well, that's not what Paul says here. He says, go out of your way to honour people. In fact, it almost sounds competitive, doesn't it? Outdo one another. Do your best. Think of creative ways of honouring people. Go above and beyond. Now at Anchor, we want to have honour as a big part of our culture here. And for that reason, we've included a culture of honour as one of our team values. So we've got five team values. Pursue excellence, culture of grace, fun, a culture of expectancy and a culture of honour. Now, it's very all well and good to say, hey, we, yeah, we want a culture of honour at our church and you can cast a vision for that, but a culture is really just a repeated behaviour that you do over and over again. And so take something that's nice and vague, like a culture of honour, and make that practical. You need to turn that vision into a behaviour. And so the behaviour that we've associated with a culture of honour is the behaviour of bragging on them. So we want all of you to be good at bragging on each other to see the contribution that a person on your team has done and then honour them for that publicly in front of other people, to see the characteristics that are being modelled and demonstrated by people in your gospel community and honour people for that. What would it look like for a church of people who are more concerned about affirming and celebrating and honouring the contribution and the characteristics of others than they were about receiving that for themselves. It would be amazing. A church where we're focused on people's progress, not just the mistakes that they made. A church where people are celebrated and we are able to celebrate people's gifts without jealousy. We're able to celebrate people's wins without feeling small ourselves. We're able to celebrate the fruit of other people's ministries, with joy. A church where we affirm not just the things that people do, but the character that comes with it, the inner person as well. And I actually think we're pretty good at this. I think we're good at this as a church. I've certainly been on the receiving end, and I hope that you have been on the receiving end of that as well. There's always room to grow. We always get better at doing this. Outdo one another in showing honour. Well, that's the first uh, category of commands there. We're to be others centered in our attitudes. The second way is that we're to be others centered in our actions. And Jesus gives us a beautiful example of what this looks like in John chapter 13. Have a look. John 13, verse 4 says this Jesus laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he t- tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. While he was washing their feet, uh, sorry, when he had washed their feet and put his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done for you. On Tuesday mornings, our staff and interns start every day with a time of devotion and prayer. And we pray for you guys. For those of you who are still texting prayer requests to the prayer phone, believe it or not, that still exists and you can text them. We pray for those prayer requests. We pray for you. We pray for the needs of this church. And we also do a little devotion together. And a few months ago, Brad um, Kahneman was leading the devotion for us and he brought John 13 to our team that morning, but he also brought a bucket of warm water and a towel. And he read that verse and then went around and washed everyone's feet, all of the staff, all of the interns. And at one level, I was like, that's disgusting. You have no idea where those feet have been. And even you know, when he's washing my feet, I was like, this is really uncomfortable. And only imagine what it was like for the, the 12 to have Jesus washing their feet. At another level, is actually quite beautiful and, and even emotional at points. Because Jesus says this isn't just a, a nice idea. He says, if I, your master and Lord, have done this, I expect that you would do the same, that, that you would follow my example and serve one another. And so we're called, like Jesus, as apprentices and followers of Jesus to live lives like him. And he serves us. And so we serve because he first has served us and because that is our identity. As people of God, we are called to be servants. And so we serve in a number of ways. This is all with our actions. The first is we, we serve with our gifts. One of the metaphors that the writers of the New Testament use to describe the church is a body. And in a body, there are lots of different parts that make up the whole. There is a hand and there's a foot and there's a, an eye and an ear and a mouth and a nose and a gluteus maximus and a gluteus medius and minimus, and they're all, they're all a part of it, and they're all playing their part and their function. They're doing their bit to make the body work. And Paul says that the same is true. That metaphor is true of the church, that every single person has a different gift, but the exercise of that gift and the use of that gift, the way that they serve, builds up the whole, strengthens the whole, grows the whole, and in fact grows the individual as a part of it. So Peter will say this, of the use of our gifts in 1 Peter 4.10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Your gift has been given not purely for your ends and your means and your purposes, but has been given so that you would use it to serve others. Now, that doesn't mean that in your service, You're not going to be blessed. You're not going to receive. You're not going to get joy. Of course, it was Jesus who endured the scorn of the cross for the joy that was set before Him, right? Of course, we're going to be blessed. We will actually grow ourselves as we pour ourselves out in service of others. That's what it means to be God's people. And so every single person here has a gift. You all have a part to play. That gift may be just a natural ability that God has created you with. Or it may be a supernatural ability that God has gifted you with. But every single person in this room has a gift and a part to play. Some of you have gifts in waiting, gifts in development. And I was thinking as I was reading through these verses this week, there's a lot of commands in here about encouraging others. I don't know if you realise this, but the gift there is a gift of encouragement. There's a gift of encouragement in the Bible. And I would love to see more people at this church exercising the gift of encouragement. There are a few people who I believe have the gift of encouragement that I've seen used. Matt Matt and Robin Newfield are, are part of them. Terry Kwok, who was in our gospel community last year, has a beautiful gift of encouragement. Now, if we want to see more people exercising the gift of encouragement in our community, what we need to do as a collective is when you receive encouragement or when you see someone offer encouragement to another, we need to affirm that gift. Thank them for it. Tell them what it did for you. Tell them how significant that was in the other person's life. And the more we begin to affirm those gifts, the more those people with those gifts will use them. But encouragement is a really big one. I would love to see more people exercising the gift of encouragement at anchor. We use our God-given gifts to serve practically to our brothers and sisters to build the church up. The second way that we um, can be other-centred with our actions is in our welcome and in our hospitality. Romans 16, 16 says this, greet one another with a holy kiss. And you see there's a couple of other references there, 1 Corinthians 13, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, before planting anchor, I was a youth pastor at a church in Western Sydney for 10 years called Multicultural Bible Ministry. It was a multi-ethnic church, 70 different ethnic backgrounds in the one church, and when I first turned up there, there were a lot of Middle Eastern people at that church. And I remember um, it, was a, it was a very affectionate church. I remember most Sundays you would turn up, you would get a big hug. Occasionally, I would get a hug and a kiss from the men in the church. And on one occasion, I got not just a kiss on two cheeks, but a kiss on the lips as well. Now, my, you know, white middle class Hills District upbringing, I was silently kind of dying inside when when I first joined the church. At the end of it, I loved it. I was almost ready to kiss everyone (laughs) at the end of that. But it's a beautiful expression of affection in community. Now, I think it's very easy for us to think, well, clearly this was written in the context of a Middle Eastern society. And that's what people are like in the Middle East. You know, that's what people are like in Africa. But hey, all of us Anglos and us Asians, we're so reserved, we don't do this. It's just not how we roll. We can just dismiss verses like this that encourage a holy kiss. But I think we actually need to find a form of cultural appropriate expression of these commands. Because this isn't just about what you do. This is about not being cold, not being distant, not being aloof as a community. In fact, there's a number of, um, you know, really important research projects that have been done that talk about the damaging effects of a lack of affection in the life of children. Children that grow up with a lack of affection have, there's implications for that, right? And that's true for adults. I think we, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we have been created as people with a need for affection, I mean, how good! sometimes you just need a good hug, right? And it just fixes everything from mum. You just get this good hug from mum. It's like, yes, I can do life again because mum gave me a hug, right? We have a need for affection. And so I think we can figure out culturally appropriate ways of doing this as a community. Now, we live in a world that is highly litigious and in a context where there has been abuse in this area, particularly in the church. Touch has become something that is... Um, we're paranoid of and so we we train all of our kids workers not to initiate touch with children or to offer a side hug you know you stand next to someone you give them a little hug on the side it's kind of like I only got half the affection I really needed in that (laughs) and that's uh, we need to be careful to be fair we need to be careful we need to ask permission And so I think as a good rule, I think a healthy way of expressing this is probably a hug with someone that you know, someone who knows you, someone who has given you permission to do that. There's a bit of reciprocity to the relationship. I don't think this is a good idea for the single guys amongst us to think, I'm going to apply this verse today, find the cutest single girl over morning tea, kiss her on the lips and see what happens. (laughs) I don't think that's what this verse is meaning. So I think we need to exercise caution But I think there are culturally appropriate and safe ways of offering affection to each other. I love it when I see people coming up the stairs and being greeted by our Connect team and people giving each other hugs and smiling. It's a beautiful reflection of what community ought to be like. And so we serve one another in our actions by our greetings, by affirming one another with affection The third way, the way others centred, is with our words. So with our attitudes, with our actions, and thirdly, with our words. Now, I think this area is probably the area that most of us think, well, this is the bit that the staff and the pastors and our GC leaders do. This is about teaching and warning and instructing. But if you have a look at those verses, you'll notice that there's a distinct absence of the word pastor or leader or gospel community leader Anywhere in those verses, right? There's just not there. These are instructions to all of God's people. We are called to use our words in a way that is others-centred, that builds other people up. So this is for all of us. This is the priesthood of all believers in play in the church community. And we're to do that in a number of ways. You'll notice there's a number of teaching commands there. Have a look at Colossians 3.16, which says, Let the word of Christ Dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. This isn't just Sunday sermon. This is life on life, teaching one another. You'll notice it says there, admonishing, warning one another, pulling a brother or sister aside and saying, Brother, I want to warn you, I, I don't think this decision is godly, I don't think this is God honoring. Sister, I want to warn you about this decision that you have to make. This is the type of community that I think values theological development. We have to care about the truth of God's word because every single one of you is called to teach, to use your words to speak truth to each other. And it's important for us to ensure we are speaking truth. And so that's why you need to know your Bible. It's not good enough just to delegate the responsibility to your GC leader or to the pastors and staff of our church. Theological formation and development is significant because that is how we grow. And all of us have a part to play in that. So teaching, we use our words in an other-centered way to teach one another, to warn one another, to instruct one another. Secondly, we use our words to encourage. You notice how many times that comes up there? 1, Corinthians, oh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 8, 5, 11, Hebrews three thirteen, Hebrews 10, 24, Hebrews 10, 25. It's literally everywhere. Why? Because in the first century as today, it is difficult to be a Christian and you're not going to get any encouragement to follow Jesus from the culture around you. So as God's people, we're called to encourage one another, to use our words to fill people with courage, this um, this Friday I was driving my daughter Piper to preschool, and I was trying to help her understand what it looks like to use our words to lift people up. So I said to her, um, Piper says, "You go to preschool today. Is there anyone that you can think of that you could use your words to encourage?" She's like, "What does that mean, Daddy?" I was like, "Oh, damn it! I don't... What does that mean, right?" So I said, "Encouraging is about using your words." to lift someone up, to make them feel good, to make them feel happy and make them strong inside. It's like, that's a good definition. It's like, yeah, dad, dad win right there. To make you strong inside. And so we discussed what that could look like. And she said she didn't want to say anything. She was just going to draw a picture for her teacher and give it to her. I was like, that'll do, whatever. (laughs) But encouragement is about making other people strong inside. It's about filling them with courage. What does it look like to do that? To use our words to lift people up, to encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching, as Hebrews says. Now there's a bunch of other instructions in there about the use of our words. There's instructions about praying for one another. It's not just the prayer team that does that. Praying for each other in GCs, committing to praying for each other during the week. There's instructions there about not lying speaking the truth to one another, about confessing our sin to each other, a community of people that would be real enough to be able to confess our failures and mistakes and then have people not speak law and condemnation, but speak the gospel and the truth and call us to repentance and change. We're to use our words to be others-centred. Reality is so much of the words that we read are used to tear down and destroy and divide. We see that played out every single post on Facebook. It's ridiculous. Social media is so discouraging at the moment. I feel like I'm going to give up, but I can't because so much of Anchor's stuff is on Facebook. But all of the use of words that we see plastered in front of our faces every day are used to tear down and destroy. Where to be a community that builds other people up and gives them strength on the inside. So our attitudes are to be other-centred, our actions are to be other-centred, and our words are to be others-centred. I'll give you an example of this. Most Sundays when I'm preaching, Matt and Robin Newfield find me, and they come, they both lay their hands on me, and they say, "We, we wanna bless you, brother, and they say something encouraging, and then they pray for me. And their prayers are being answered in your lives as you sit under the preaching of the Word. They're using their words to build up, to to encourage me. They get what it's like to get up here and preach every week that this is a spiritual task and that there's weight and significance to this. And and so they want to bless the preparation that they've done. They come and speak a blessing over me and they pray for me. They use their words to build me up. And you guys get blessed because of that. Because I come up here feeling encouraged after Matt and Robin have prayed for me. And there are countless other ways that you can be creative in thinking about how we do this. So attitudes, actions, words, and finally, we are others-centred with our hearts. We are others-centred with our hearts. Now I realise love is a bit bit of a false dichotomy, right? Because you can't really love someone without words and actions and attitude. Really, all this is about love. But I needed a fourth point there, so I just threw it in. But it's also a really big category. Have you noticed how many times the authors of the New Testament mention the phrase love one another? Have a look. Twelve times. 1 John 3, 34. 1 John 3, 34. Uh, 1 John. John 13, 35. John 15, 12. John 15, 17. Romans thirteen eight. 1 John 3, 11. 1 John 3, 23. 1 John 4, 7. 1 John 4, 11. 1 John 4, 12. And 2 John 5. And Romans 12, 10. Love one another, love one another, love one another, love one another, love one another. It is not a small category. This is a repeated command over and over and over again, featured by every author of the New Testament about what it looks like to be God's people. And then there are a few verses in there that talk about the type of love that we're supposed to have. You notice there in Romans twelve ten. says love one another with brotherly affection love one another with brotherly affection i don't know did i did i do this in this service already talk about my brother i don't think i did that was the first service if you if perhaps you have a sibling or a younger or older brother i have a younger brother jonah he's two and a half years younger than me and um we'll be known to like be watching TV, lying on the couch together and one is just lying on top of the other one or or even just like, you know, lying butt to butt, back to back, just lying there on top of each other, watching TV. Or sometimes he'll just come up to me, put his arm on my shoulder and just sit and talk to me or lick my ear or something stupid like that. There's just this sense of affection that I have with my brother because he's my brother. And Paul is saying, this is the tone of the love that we have for one another. Not that you're supposed to lick each other. That's creepy in this context. But what he's saying is that like you are with your blood relatives, like your immediate family, there's affection there that is a mark of the Christian community. We're kind of comfortable with each other, comfortable enough to be close and be real and be vulnerable and authentic. Or have a look at 1 Peter 4 verse 8. Loving one another earnestly. Loving one another earnestly. That means love is sincere. It's not a facade. It's not a front. It's not a pre- pretense. It's loving someone because you actually love them, not because, oh, hey, we're in the same gospel community. And I better get along with them. So. But, but loving them because your heart disposition towards them is for their good and because you've been united together in Christ. Love needs to be earnest, needs to be real, needs to be authentic. And if you have a look at the end of that passage that Brad read for us in Colossians 3.14, Paul says this about the nature of love. And above all these things put on love. Above all what things? All of the one and another commands, all the things that he's been saying about how to do church together. Above all of those things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I don't know if you've seen those um pottery mosaics, you know where people take broken pottery and they make a piece of art out of them. Perhaps they might um, cover the outside of a, a pottery vase and they'll stick all these broken bits of coloured pottery on it and then they'll put a grout around the outside and they'll rub the whole thing in the grout and the grout is what binds that pottery together and keeps it together and it dries and it sets and it solidifies and holds the, the thing together. Sometimes you even see that on a tabletop or sometimes even a, a footpath. Paul is saying love is the thing that binds our outward actions to one another together. It pulls it all together in harmony and unites us. We're to be others-centred with our hearts as we love. So others-centred in our attitudes, others-centred in our actions, others-centred in our words, and others-centred in our hearts. This is a holistic view of what it looks like to be God's people in community. This is for all of us, and this includes all of who we are. Thought, word, and deed. We're to be others centered. And so, what does it look like for you? I mean, realistically, the sermon is this is pretty straightforward stuff. Go and do it. Go and do it this week. Go and do it in your gospel communities. I want to ask you you guys to ask this question in your GCs this week. What are the characteristics of our GC? What is the, the tone or the attitude of our GC? What are the marks? What are we known for? If someone were to look in, what would they say? about our community, what attitudes and actions and words are being used? Are they building others up? Are they tearing down? What do we need to change? How can we love each other more deeply? Or even on an individual level, think about your own personal attitude, your own personal actions, your own personal words. How are you using those things to build and lift and strengthen those around you instead of to tear down? In the end, Jesus is both our example and our power, our motivation for this. He is the one who gave up the throne of heaven and exchanged that for the splinters of the cross to be crucified and died and buried to serve us on our behalf. He was the one who considered our needs above His own. Can you believe that? God of the universe. To serve us, He's not just our example, He's also our motivation and our power to do this. Human nature inherently turns in, and by the power of the Spirit, Jesus changes and transforms us and sends us outward and turns us out to others. This is not at the expense of our joy. It's not like a begrudging sense of duty towards others that leads to this pious kind of false humility about how much we're pouring ourselves out for those around. No, no, this is a deep, genuine pursuit of your own joy in serving others, because that's when we receive joy. As we serve, as we pour ourselves out like Jesus did for us. And so that's my prayer. It's my hope that this is the type of community that we would be a part of. The most loving people in your life would be those sitting in these chairs to your left and to your right. And that the Spirit would continue to change us and shape us to help us be God's people as we love one another. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning. And that meal is actually a reminder of unity, of oneness, because we share in a common cup and in a common loaf, the body and blood of Jesus that was torn, the blood that was poured out. That is the thing that unites us together and makes us one. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, those of you who love Jesus, who are a part of His church, invite you to come forward to take the bread, dip it in the grape juice, eat it, remembering the unity that we share Remembering that you have been bonded together with the people in your gospel community, their family, that's who we are. Rejoice in that, celebrate in that. This meal doesn't need to be somber, it can be a celebration of who God has placed around us. Secondly, we're going to celebrate in prayer. We're going to respond in prayer. You can celebrate in prayer as well. Our prayer team are up the back with orange landings on. They would love to do nothing more than use their words to serve you this morning, to pray for your needs, whatever they are, they would love to do that. And finally, we'll respond in our giving. Giving containers will come around during the next song. We invite those of you who call Anchor home to give joyfully, generously, sacrificially. If you're a guest, you're under no obligation to give. Please simply let those giving containers pass you by or put your Connect card and pen in them. I'm gonna pray for us. I'm gonna hand over to the band, wherever they are. They're gonna come out now, but let's respond. Let me invite you to stand, church, as we... Respond together. Pray that God would make us His people. Father God, we thank You that You love us. And we thank You that Your love has extended across the universe. Not just a sentiment, but a Son who died on the cross, whose blood was shed, whose life was poured out. God, we want to be a people where that love is overflowing in our words, our actions and our attitudes. We need You, Holy Spirit. Please transform us. Make us more like You. We ask this in Jesus' name.